so part of what's going on here with this um, this idolatry uh, series, the series on idolatry, is I'm dragging my feet, which is to say I'm trying to get a better um, a better understanding theologically and biblically of idolatry uh, as I kind of think through that, and that's that's initially where my where it started, and then this kind of the, the history of the kind of uh, the growth of the church, and then that church's work, the ch- Christian church's work in putting down idols and old-timey idolatry um, is something that's kind of come in front of me, and Constantine here has, and, uh, and his nephew, I think, Julian, who became emperor, what, 60 years or so, maybe a little less than that, after, after Constantine, who tried to reopen, in fact did reopen a number of pagan uh, temples and sacrifices even in Constantinople, the great Christian capital. Um, so there's this resurgence of paganism saying, no, 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 we want the old gods back. Um, and then Christianity comes back with a, um, a left hook after that and it's kind of over. But it, So in the history of the Roman Empire, it's like, yeah, you can kind of see it be, start to become Christian and then start to become thoroughly Christian. And then it's not, yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's not so sure. Maybe it's just a small veneer on this thing. And I, I would just, as a general course of looking at history, society and social connections and uh, civil society is always a very thin veneer. It always is. Uh, when something goes down, it's weird, it's wrong, you can see those things break apart quickly all the time. And the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ ought not be like that. Right? We're connected to each other. We're bone to each other's bone and flesh to each other's flesh because we all are one in Christ Jesus. And so when the poop goes down, when it hits the fan and things go wily, um, you know, you got your own family and everything when you, you love and take care of, but the body of Christ must hang together, must stay together, must serve each other and love each other. Anyway, that's something important as we, if you can look and see different periods of history where things fall apart, they get nasty, and uh, it happens. And it may happen in our lifetime. It may happen in our children's lifetime here in these United States. Anyway, that's all I run saying. I'm kind of tracing down a bit of history here, and history I'm not very familiar with either. It's not like I've done a whole lot of study in the ancient church. One of the things I wanted to gain in going to seminary, I was excited to like go and learn about, was the ancient church, the, the early centuries of the church, and how this thing kind of developed. And I walked out of seminary knowing a little more. <laughs> having, having, a, having a better idea of that rather than having almost no idea of it um, going in. So, anyway, I'll say this isn't special to you for me, but it's, it's interesting and valuable, and um, you guys are certainly welcome to throw in. Okay, so two things then. I gave you a handout that just has a list of persecutions, which is to say official persecutions by Rome of the Christian church. And once you get down to about 250, they start getting bad. Right. Before that, they're more sporadic, they're more localized. But once you get into 250, and that's because partially what I'm talking about, that uh, the Roman armies are starting to fail, and there's, there's a societal problems going on in the middle of the 3rd century. And um, do you guys know how, at least through Christian history often, if there's a drought or if there's something that happens, um, that there's, there's often subgroups within society that are blamed for that, which is Jews, um, a handful of others that say, okay, listen, we're having problems, take it on the Jews, it's their fault, they're the ones that are doing this. In fact, they have all these rituals where they cook and eat Christian babies and whatever else goes on. We, you know, those things just are said and, and kind of poison the waters and keep the waters poisoned against certain minority groups. Well, your brothers in Christ Jesus were that group. 
Right? The Romans loved to kick the Christians around. Um, they loved to take it out on the Christians, and it happened plenty. And that's part of what being a Christian was through these first centuries of the church. Right? So these are our brothers in Christ, and they're worth, uh, anyway, they're worth at least remembering that for, a, you know, for, for many, many generations at the beginning, to be a Christian kind of meant being an outcast anyway, and sometimes meant your life and your property just by virtue of the Roman Empire, the Roman government and what it was doing. Um, so, you can look at that little sheet and see, see some of the people who were involved and see when they were involved. And, of course, the greatest of these persecutions is at the very end, um, under Diocletian, which we'll get to, Emperor Diocletian, who came right before, well, with this kind of mess, uh, before Constantine. And, of course, it goes from Christianity being outlawed and, you know, really, not, not just outlawed, but outlawed since 64, right? So, but really putting the Roman power behind that persecution to, in 312 and 313, suddenly Christianity is no longer illegal. All the guys that were lined up to be executed are free. It's a miracle. Right? And I think the Christians largely see the conversion of Constantine, whether it's like early on in his political career or later on, but the, the works that he does through a period of time, some, some say like um, 312 and 313, uh, when he ostensibly wins the Battle of the Milvian Bridge under the signs of the cross and the key row, right? The, the uh, key and row are the first two letters of Christ, or Christos in Greek. And so the, you can see the XP, looks like XP to us. In fact, I couldn't believe it. There's a church up in Puyallup that um, is called Church Key Row or something. I think that's it. But everyone says XP. Even the guys in Presbytery, you should know better, um, say, oh, it's the Church XP. I'm like, no, that was a Microsoft-like uh, operating system. The key row is Christ, Christos. Um, anyway, so I'm getting ahead of myself. But from the point where Constantine wins this decisive battle in Roman history, moving him into like having almost all power in his hands and eventually bringing it all together in the empire, and he does it under Christian signs. Right? He does it, uh, so that's, that's an important move forward, and that to the end of his career, where Roman society, not just in Rome, but through the empire, is still mostly pagan. It's still mostly filled with pagans, not Christians. And he's got to be, he's a Christian emperor then trying to figure out how to operate as a, as a newly Christian emperor in a pagan world and with pagan traditions and everything else. So he's a, he's a fascinating figure. Um, many love to hate on him. He's easy to hate on in certain ways because he entrenches Christianity in this world so much, in the institutions of this world, in the money of this world, in the political power of this world, where before that, Christianity kind of didn't have any of that. There were, there were some nice buildings, a, a couple of them, not much. All the great Christian works of art, and, and uh, except for the catacombs, because the Christians are hidden, right? They can't have big public worship services until you know, 313, until Constantine says, no, you can't. So with that freedom and a lot of good things comes the patronage of the state, and that messes everything up, right? It always does. Right? When the state says, hey, we want to give you money to do something, go work on cars or go to school, it always comes with strings, right? You're aware of that. That's one of the things for homeschoolers. Like, hey, homeschoolers, we'll give you some money and this and that. It's like, no, just stay out. Stay out. Right? I don't want your money. I don't want your strings. I don't want your attention. Just stay out. Well, anyway, it's, it was the same way in the ancient world. When, when Rome becomes at least open to Christianity and finally becomes Christian, that's great. There's a lot of, there's a lot of goodies coming out of, out of the uh, coffer, uh, the imperial coffer, but all of that comes with strings as well and problems. So, He's, he's easy. Constantine's an easy guy to kind of look back on and just be amazed and like wonder about him and you know thumbs up. But he's also a guy like, well, I'm not so sure that went well. Uh, there's some problems there. So let's see if we can make it through these 
10 little points here. All right, so Constantine kind of located him. He got his years there. He died in 337. And I have, he's the most visible public conversion between St. Paul and St. Augustine. So you have St. Paul in the first century. You have St. Augustine who died in 430. And in the middle of that is, you know, there, there are conversions, right? People are converting. Christianity is, uh, at least in the first couple centuries, growing fairly slowly, not enormously fast. Once Constantine removes the, uh, the state, you know, hawks on Christianity, and he himself is a Christian, that makes it very much more popular, right? There's a lot of growth that comes with that as well. Anyway, he's, a, uh, he's the most public figure between Paul and Augustine to become a Christian. And, that's, and there's not a lot. Like, we have a lot about Augustine. He wrote a ton, and people wrote about him. And, of course, we have St. Paul, who wrote about himself in the book of Acts, and in Second Corinthians and wherever else, talking about his own life. So we have a lot of material on Paul and, and Augustine, but not quite so much on Constantine, interestingly enough. Okay, and he's a different kind of guy because Paul, of course, is coming out of a rigorous Judaism, massively powerful intellect, in the, the, one of the great intellects of the first century. And you're kind of dealing with the same thing with uh, Augustine as well. He comes out of a, at least a Christian background. His mom's Christian and kind of raised him that way. His dad's, you know, a Roman and doesn't care much. And, and then, you know, Augustine floats around from Manichaeism to Paganism or to um, Platonism. And then finally back to Christianity. But you have these guys that are kind of brought up in something of a biblical monotheistic environment. Not Constantine. He's, he's, a, he's an army guy, right? he's from the military, he's come up as a pagan, pagan as they can be, just worshipping all the gods and doing different stuff. So he's a different kind of convert than both Paul and Augustine in that way. Number two, Christian Europe, just as a, just almost like an introductory note, depends on Constantine. His work is what made Christendom, right? almost single-handedly. It's like his conversion and the policies he's laying out, and then his sons, especially after him, make Christendom. And of course, Christian Europe leads to Christian America and other places, right? So um, his work uh, is enormous and has an enormous impact on Christian history, period. I guess the Christianity is not the same after, after Constantine as it was before him, and it's never the same. Um, okay, I'll pause for any kind of questions with that, like throwing various things on the wall. Yeah. So the question is, when did Roman Catholicism start? That's a great question. One thing that, one thing that Constantine does is identifies, because it's not like there's just one Christian confession out there in the ancient world, right? There are Christian heresies and things that are going on. And Constantine kind of has to step up and say, well, you know, something like, little real, real church, please stand up. And so he counts the, the churches that are particularly connected historically to the mission work of St. Paul and the other apostles, and the bishops of those kind of congregations, and kind of draws the church together. That way, he, we'll see later, not only building Constantinople as a, as a Christian city, which is important, like you can't overstate how important it is, um, but also the Council of Nicaea, um, and Donatism, and other things too, where Constantine himself is like adjudicating these things for the church, right? The emperor, the Roman emperor is telling the church, you know, that kind of thing. So how Roman Catholicism develops is something of a, even defining it, what, what is Roman Catholicism as opposed to the general Catholic Church, and when did Rome become more important, or when did it think it became, it thought it became more important than before it did, uh, but when did it become super-duper important, and when did the Bishop of Rome become really the first among 
equals or whatever the leader. I'm not sure. Uh, that's, that's a lot of historical work. But it's from this that that happens, right? This is the centerpiece of Rome. Although, funny thing is, Rome is not where uh, Constantine makes his capital. Rome's not a very good place for capital by the time of the early, you know, this kind of late modern or late ancient period. Uh, there are other places like Milan that are just way more strategic uh, than Rome is, and Constantinople, used to be called Byzantium, was one of them, right? So, so he makes the Christian capital over there, and, and Rome's a, a pagan city into the 5th century, right? And that's one thing to think about is because, why, why would that be? Why would Rome be a pagan city that's so late into the Christian era? Yeah, well, there's, there's, there are pagans there, and there's old money there. There are old traditions there, and that's that's what has the staying power, right? Uh, so, you know, it doesn't help that Constantine takes so much of the power and leaves and goes and sets up a new capital elsewhere, too. That's, that's not that helpful. Um, yeah. yeah. So they, the way I understand it, I mean, they they had good intentions, and they had military, and they had power and stuff, but they didn't have God. And, you know, the Visigoths, I, I remember the year... Augustine writes about him, so but that was somewhere around 300 or something like that. When did Paul? Well, yeah. So he's well. So Augustine, just a couple of Augustine things. One, he's dying in 430. He's laying dying. Um, Hippo is, is, is under siege by whatever I can't remember. The, you know, whichever the vandals. I think. Um, what's that? When was the fall of the Roman Empire? So any number of times, right? So well, from okay, the, when the Visigoths, the first one, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing in the middle of the third century, but I don't know. But there's there are these kind of like. Not only the internal pagans, right, of, of the Roman Empire, but these other tribes out there that are coming in, which is kind of what you're talking about. Well, they're not Christian either, although they become Christian or Aryan um, in time as well. So there's the internal paganism to deal with and the idolatry there. Also the external outside, you know, coming and forcing their way in. Um, so there are very uncertain times. Like we kind of look back and see a straight line. Uh, you know, but living through that stuff is not the same thing as looking back at it with a timeline in your hands. I know, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because when you're going through it, it doesn't make sense, right? You can't see what's ahead of you. And, you know, that's how sometimes studying history has. We, yeah, we, there's a trick there that we do in our minds, where just because we we can see something has happened a certain way, we put that into the minds of the people going on. Of course, it's going to go this way. But as you're going through it, there's no of course at all, right? As far as how things will transpire, what will go down. Just like our own lives, we should recognize that in our own lives. Any other thoughts at hand? Yeah. I was going to ask you a question about why Rome's still pagan or whatever too. Is some point they deified their Caesar, so they in some way kind of made the state <laughs> part of their paganism. Absolutely, so yeah. The state's part of the pantheon. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So there are there are long-standing uh, connections to pagan worship, and I was trying to get across last week how thoroughly pagan, how, how everything in society's worked into this. It's not like oh, go to go to your pagan church on Tuesday, yay, or go worship Thor on Thursday. Um, and then go by the rest of your life. All of this stuff put together in society. Christians have to kind of sort it out and figure out what, what they can do and what they can't do. Right? What things are idolatrous worship and what aren't. Uh, what pagan gods are actually just attributes of God, and we can like receive that as attributes of God, versus other pagan gods that have nothing to do with the attributes of God. Anyway, sorting those sorts of things out um, takes a long time and a lot of work. And, um, anyway, and so the early church is sorting out those things. Um, very quickly, number three. I'll be quick on this one, although it's, it's important for persecutions. Um, so in the middle of the third century, the 200s, uh, the Roman Empire is basically falling apart, right, from attacks from the outside, disorganization within. It's an enormous empire, right? I mean, stretching from Spain all the way around North Africa, all the way up to, um, you know, England, 
uh, eventually Hadrian built a wall and said, we don't want to go any farther north than this. Uh, those, those Scots can keep it for themselves. And, uh, and then all the way around in the Eastern Empire. So it's an enormous empire. And one thing here that I have in number three is the reordering under Diocletian. He says, listen, we can't do it this way anymore. And he totally restructures the government. He says, we're going to have one, uh, we'll have one Augustus in the east, and we'll have one Augustus in the west. So we have the western uh, capital of Rome and the eastern capital of Constantinople. And we'll get there. But not only are we going to have two Augusti, we're going to have two Caesarei also. So these kind of understudies that we're going to step into, because into, into being the eastern or western emperor. Part of the issue that Rome's always had is um, succession policy, right? It's always a problem. What happens when the emperor dies? If there's not provision made, well, you know what happens? Civil war. That's what happens. We all kill each other uh, until someone finally ends up on top, and then they're the emperor, right? And this, So that's kind of often how things will go in Rome. That's how things are going here in the third century also, and Diocletian's the one who kind of resets this whole thing up and shapes it up, and, and, and that gets a lot of traction and organization and brings the empire kind of back from falling apart into being this organized machine that Constantine takes over and uses for his kind of Christian ends, right? Uh, he's using this, this, yeah, organized machine. The tetrarchy is that, that means ruler of four rulers, the, ru- the rule of four, where you have the two Augustuses and the two Caesars. And you have, so you have these four you know, positions of power in the Roman Empire, as opposed to just, you know, instead of just one emperor. Right? You've got this whole structure around those guys. Yeah, Miley. Great question. No, but that's a good question. So, um, a, a bishop is an ecclesiastical office. It's a, it's, it's a church office. Right? We're talking about state offices, right, through the Roman state. But one thing, of course, that Constantine does is he makes a whole class, an ordo, for Christian ministers, particularly bishops. Right? So, there's the, there, Christian bishops now can function within the state. So, he actually kind of opens up and says, here's a, here's a place where Christian bishops can come and function and deal with things in the state, where, of course, before it was all outlawed, so they couldn't do that. But he, uh, he accommodates the church hierarchy and leadership into his own hierarchy and leadership because he wants to rule it all. Right? He wants to control it all and does a pretty good job of doing that. Good question. Other questions? Okay, so one of the things, not only does he, uh, Diocletian, this, this kind of new setup, um, but he does, he focuses in on persecuting the Christians, on taking Christian property, on burning Christian books, on, um, on putting, you know, uh, so Christianity is definitely in the targets big time for Diocletian, and that's the, maybe about 10 years of, or 12 years of really focused persecution throughout the empire, Kind of, you know, it's darkest before the dawn, kind of thing, um, and then, and then that that uh, that set up with the four, the tetrarchy, the four leaders, falls apart because, well, Diocletian retires, which is crazy. He retires, and uh, and his other Caesar with him, and then these other guys step up, but one dies, and it becomes a problem. And um, Constantine's a military man, and when one of the Caesars dies, his whatever they call his big group he led, said, this guy is Caesar now, and so he was, and so he went in and had to do battle with other Romans, and one of the battles, the most decisive one, is here called the Milvian Bridge. The Milvian Bridge is just north of Rome, and there's a place where there have been pretty significant battles in the past, uh, where the Republic was lost, and the uh, Principate started with the Milvian Bridge, Milvian Bridge, and so here also, this battle, where he takes out one of the other guys in the Tetrarchy and is able to consolidate the Western Empire to himself, and it takes him another 
another 11 years to, to finally get the East together as well, which ends up at being 324. Anyone know what, what happened the next year? Right? He calls the he calls the great assembly of the of the church. That's the Council of Nicaea in 325, called by Constantine, presided over by Constantine, uh, Bishop of Rome, not even there. And so go put that one on and put that in your Roman Catholic pipe and smoke it. Uh, the, the very first uh, the very first ecumenical council, the Roman bishop isn't even there. Uh, I think he has sent, sent a couple of legates or something like that. But anyway. Um, that's important because, of course, he wants to pawn himself off a little bit later. That office wants to pawn himself off as the very head of the church, right? Um, it's the one that calls the councils and decides what goes on and says, well, maybe, but you weren't even there at the beginning, um, sort of thing is, is worth talking about. Okay. Yes. He is, he, he is one of the Tetrarchs, and one, another dies, and it's, so the power is kind of offset or unbalanced, and it begins, uh, yeah, his, his men somehow foist him into power, and off he goes, and he's, he, so, it, and by this point, the, the, the Roman Senate, like the senators, uh, they have very little to say to the emperor, um, but there's, there's these, these kind of third century reforms move the emperorship out of this kind of like, you know, this political law back and forth with the Senate and all that, don't need it. The armies are not controlled by the Senate, who might appoint generals or whatever, but right by the emperor, right? So it's this consolidation of power uh, in the imperial hands, in the emperor's hands. And he's basically the usurper of it, right? So Constantine's the one who takes that power himself, his own way, militarily, and becomes the emperor, not unlike Augustus himself at the beginning, you know. it's um, kind of how that went. That's often how it goes, um, I don't know if that answered your question or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, can't tell by your face now either. All right. We'll keep moving in confusion. Any other questions? <laughs> right. When the eyes are slightly crossed and the mouth's not quite closed, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a good, good idea we need to move on then. Okay, uh, number five very quickly. I mentioned this. Donatism is, Donatism is a heresy, an early church heresy. That It's really a, a separatist kind of heresy that comes after a man named Donatus. And Donatus is one of these guys that, in those persecutions be, you know, between like 303 and 312, that kind of last really heavy persecutions, a number of Christians um, not only maybe turned over holy books, they come here and say, do you have any Bibles? And, and if you give them away, or if you happen to um, you know, make a small sacrifice to the genius of the emperor or something else that would be seen as idolatry and Christians shouldn't do it, the church say, well, you have lapsed. You're a lapsed Catholic. You're a lapsed Christian. And, um, and then when, when Constantine came in, and that's all uh, something of the past now, a number of these guys who were either put into the, you know, you can imagine the tortures and so on that happened to Christians in that period of time, well, when they come back, and, and Constantine lists the ban on Christianity, a number of people are waiting for their deaths, get, get out of jail, and they're like, oh, well, we have these other brothers over here who really aren't even brothers at all because they lapsed. They gave it up. They're not Christians anymore. They need to be rebaptized and brought back into the church. They've given up their Christianity by lapsing under the pressure of Roman persecution. But we didn't. We all went to our deaths and lost our property, but they didn't. Right? You see the difference? You kind of get the point. Um, so those following Donatus were very stringent in saying, no, these ones that have sinned and lapsed have lost their Christianity. They're not a part of the church 
they don't just get to confess and come back. They need to come back as like like they're pagans, like they're outside the church and be be baptized again. So that's a that's this is a a controversy that tears apart the African church. Right, the church in North Africa, Augustine's part of that. He wrote plenty about uh, anti-Donatists. There's you know, a whole volume of anti-Donatist writings where he's saying, no, 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 this isn't how it works. And that gets into his sacramental theology and different things like that. But the point of this, though, is Constantine basically, the, the bishops on both sides of this appeal to Constantine saying, hey, come help us out. And he says, well, you know, it's, it's not the Donatists. I can't remember the guy's name who's leading the, you know, what becomes the, the Catholic version, right, the, uh, the universal one saying this. Those who have lapsed should be brought back in. They're not outsiders. They're not unchristians. They're not non-Christians. Um, so you know. So, but that's that's the emperor of Rome, again, kind of deciding on church um, controversies, right? Controversies within the church because it's now kind of the imperial church, right? It's the Church of, of Rome, and the Council of Nicaea, of course, is called as a big a big council. Um, and lots of bishops, lots of people in attendance, and the issue there is what? what are the, there, are, there are a handful of issues, but the kind of main focus of, of the Council of Nicaea, anybody have that one in hand? Was it? The deity of Christ. Sure, yeah, the deity of Christ, and then by extension, and it works off into other councils, the deity of the Holy Spirit. So Trinitarian issues, right, because the, the big heretic, the arch-heretic of the early church is Arius, one of them. And Arius would say, well... The Son of God is a similar substance, as a similar being to God the Father, but not the same being. So you got the, like in our, in our um, uh, the Nicene Creed that we recite this morning. Notice that, that we have the same substance, which means the same being is what that means. Right? Substance is the same meaning as essence, which means being. Um, so the, the great debate is, over Christ, is, is the Son of God the same substance, essence as the Father, or a similar one? Arius says he's a similar one, and he's a created being, the first created being, right, kind of like the J-dubs do now. Um, so that was, the, that was the heresy around which this council is called to try to, to, try to um, put out that Arian heresy, which doesn't work. It's still, you know, for the, all through the 4th century it's going. Uh, but anyway, what I'm saying is Constantine's involved in all of that. Right, as the emperor of Rome, the Roman emperor, come out of paganism, converted to Christianity, and now is really leading the church councils and church issues there. Uh, pausing for a question. So, as far as church-state separation, forget about it. Right, it's, uh, and, and in a certain sense, it's impossible. Right, this, this notion that we have of separating, compartmentalizing, that is to say, uh, the powers in our lives and how we're to obey them and how they work. You know, God made all this stuff, right? And uh, so anyway, the, there are certain ways we want to see a separation of powers, but there are other ways it's impossible that they should be separated. There's no concept here of separation of church and state. Uh, it's the state church. Okay, quickly then, number six, Constantinople. I won't spend much time on it. I don't know much about it. Uh, but it's worth knowing that when Constantine gets done building that city, um, that it is the first Christian city of the world. It's a Christian city. It's Christian architecture. It's Christian everything. The, the, uh, the, the architecture of Constantinople, particularly the churches, and you know, the most famous one there, Hagia Sophia, you know, it's, it's still around today. Uh, it's been rebuilt from the original one that Constantine built. But there are a number of them like that uh, over there. And Hagia just means holy, and Sophia means wisdom. 
there's a Hagia Irene, which means uh, holy peace. Also, churches, these glorious churches that are built, they become the model for churches for centuries all around the world. Anyway, a very important place, and we'll just skip right by it and take up number seven. And I want to tie this in because to, to what's going on right now, this very month. Hey, it's Pride Month, guys. Where are all your rainbows? Oh, you didn't wear them, did you? Okay, well, good. Don't. Um, so there's there's a right there's there's a way in which political movements kind of like uh, gain. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Like people want to jump on the bandwagon, right? There's there's power there. There's movement there, and you can see that going on today. Well, that was going on just the opposite direction in the time of Constantine. Constantine becomes a Christian. He starts putting Christian symbols on things and actually starts taking pagan symbols out of things, off of coins and off of, out, of the, out of the public arena, where, you know, you walk around the public spaces of ancient Rome, just like, remember, Paul goes up to Athens, and he's looking everywhere. There are idols everywhere in the public space, right? There's temples everywhere in the public space. Um, and so Constantine begins the shift of kind of de-paganizing the, the public spaces and slowly Christianizing them, his son's pick it up with him, um, but let me just read what I put, wrote here and see how it kind of applies today where, man, uh, suddenly it's kind of cool to be a Christian, right? There's some perks, the emperor's on board, there's some money, there's some stuff, right? It's easy to kind of want to become a Christian once Constantine brings it in front and makes it kind of popular. Okay, here we go. How about the rise in popularity of Christianity because of imperial support? Now that the emperor is, right, uh, Christian and Christianity is legal and it's not kind of, you know, it's, it's an in thing, more of an in thing. There's something analogous to the gods of sexual perversion, individualism, and so on of our day. Business, social, uh, power interests all grab onto what's rising. Well, Christianity was the rising star. Right? It's the rising power uh, in Roman society, and Constantine, the very focused head of that. Um, and so you see a bunch of that, a bunch of kind of, you know, people that are schmoozing up to Christianity and coming into it because it's, it's worth it. There's some, there's some goodies there. Right? And that, that makes the church... A, a, even makes the discipline of the church in a, a, kind of a different ball game than before. When Christianity is illegal and unpopular, that's, that's a different sort of mentality of people, right, who are coming. But when it becomes popular and mainstream, that makes it a that makes it a different beast. Right? It's a different it's a horse of a different color. Uh, when, once once Constantine is through, and we can see something in our own time of how the idolatrous ideas and ideologies, um, man, they got some. Pump. They got some pizzazz. They got some some energy right now, and people want to grab onto that. Who otherwise might not care at all about LGBTQIA whatever uh, stuff, but they care about it now because it's hot, right? It's interesting. That's what I'm saying. So there's while well, we have the de-Christianizing in our time, in our generation, and, uh, and, and you, from the older folks coming from yours, uh, the de-Christianizing of public spaces, the de-Christianizing of of all sorts of things, you know, just taking God out of everything, right? Uh, Okay, well, that's the opposite of what's going on in Constantine's time. Just the opposite, uh, where he's getting Christianity into the public spaces little by little and taking out all these other gods and idol worship and stuff, stuff like that. Okay. Pausing for any question on that one. That's just an observation maybe of how things were going then and maybe kind of how they're going now, connection that way. There's another one for number eight or... Yep. The problem of now and not yet. That's an eschatological construction where we have the kingdom of God now, but we also are not there yet. Right? There's more to come that we're, we exist in reality uh, of, in the kingdom of God, in the reign of Christ, but there's more to come 
and we have a hope and anticipation as well. So kind of having those two things together. So here, grasping versus uh, ambitious stewardship. It's easy to get when you think of the time of Constantine and when the church is finally focused in and, and it is instantiated and it has money, that it's pretty easy to grab onto that, right? We get stuff and we want to keep it. Uh, right? We got power and money. We want to keep it and hoard it and protect it. And that's, you know, whatever that is. There, there, there could be, I think, very good and glorious ways of using material wealth and so on as a Christian. But we have to recognize in our own hearts the the proclivity we have, the desire we have to hoard and keep and, and trust in this stuff, right? And then our earthly power, our guns, our property, our money, whatever, right? Those sorts of things. And before the church has those sorts of things at its disposal, it doesn't trust in them. But once it has the power of the government behind it, then it starts to trust in that, right? And that's a problem, right? That, that moves the church into a problematic spot, which it's been in ever since, one way or another. Now, you know, you can, persecution often thins that out, right? It kind of, it takes the people who are just uh, hanging around for the perks and the goodies and the benefits, and you might look around and say, well, what are the perks and the goodies and the benefits of the Columbia Bible Presbyterian Church? Um, we get flags and whatnot and other things. You know, anyway, but, but you can imagine a church that really does have money and uh, is endowed by the state and say, yeah, there's, there's some pork there to be had and that sort of thing. And even if you're not just there for the pork, you're not just there for the goodies, but even in a Christian mind, we get wrapped up into the things of this world, the security of, of horses and, uh, and army and uh, money and power and so on. So that's a, uh, the dominion of Christ is messy, but it will become clear. Yeah, the, the dominion of Christ on this earth is messy, but it will become clear all in time. The Roman Empire was still mostly pagan in Constantine's day. Right, so we want to think, well, he, he made it Christian. No, no, no. He started something, right? He started, a, he started a movement in a way of being a Christian relative to the state of, you know, the Roman state that his sons really pressed forward uh, with legislation outlawing the pagan cults, outlawing pagan worship, uh, closing down temples, um, and so on. So I say his sons would carry on Christianizing and depaganizing the Roman world. And then number 10, watch out for Julian the Apostate, who comes and tries to outdo that, tries to reverse that and say, okay, no, 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 it's not lost. We can still worship the pagan gods. We can still have those back. Let's give it a shot. And then he dies in battle. And the Christians say, well, there you go. Um, that's what happens when you go pagan. You go die in battle. That's, that's oftentimes how things are read anyway. But um, he's done an opposition. Maybe I'll do something on him next week or maybe not. But anyway. Hopefully there's some value in all this for you. And thinking through our brothers in Christ who had to deal with a different situation, right? First of all, being outlawed and illegal, then finally being like, hey, kind of the cat's meow, the bees and easier. Um, eventually having the power, right? And, and how that changes the church, how that changes the mentality of the Christians who are living through this and, and thinking through it. Um, so I'll, I'll pause for any final questions before I wrap it up here. Let's pray. <laughs>